0: Okay, welcome back. Um, so, Professor is just going to continue for five more minutes, and then we'll move on to questions. No, let's have questions. Okay, we'll start with questions from the morning lecture. So, uh, any 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 questions or comments, Mary? Did you have a, co- a co- no, yourself, no. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> No questions, Alex.
1: Um, so, if you have a, uh, other, I, I like this this bit about gold. Why gold is um, uh, is unique because it has the slowest uh, falling margin margin utility. That's why everybody, that's why smart traders are using it as a medium of exchange. Um, but isn't one of the thi- one of the, the on on the basis of, uh, one of the basis of subjective economics that we all have our own specific preference sets, and that they aren't comparable? So how can we infer, based on everybody's different, non-comparable preference sets, that everybody definitely has uh, slower falling uh, the slowest falling marginal utility of extra gold? Um, it seems to violate the sort of basis of subjective economics. Is it a The
2: answer to your question is that marginal utility is not a concept associated with the individual. Utility is so the utility of gold to you could be very well different from the utility of gold to me or to anybody else. But marginal utility is like taking averages. It's not taking averages. And as you know, there are arithmetic means, there are geometric means, there are harmonic means, all kinds of means. And marginal utility is very special. None of these none of has nothing to do with arithmetic means. Mm. Or geometric mean any other, but marginal utility is the utility to the marginal player. So you survey all economic players and put them in, or rank them according to their utility, how they value gold from those who value it very little and to the other and to those who value value it very, very high, highly. So there's a spectrum of people. One after the other and so on. Now, there is going to be a marginal actor among this. And the marginal actor is the one who is making the exchange just now. and next moment it could be another guy, but there is a marginal actor at any moment of time. And the marginal utility of gold is the utility of gold to that particular marginal actor. It's not a fixed person, but it's always just one person. Okay? And uh, it it would vary. It would vary. Sometimes it would tend to the left. Sometimes it would tend to the right. But there is always one marginal actor. And marginal utility is impersonal because it refers to the utility of just one person, not (coughs) considering the others, just the one at any moment of time. And that's a very common mistake. People think that marginal utility is something which you have and he has and she has and everybody else has. No, it's just the utility of gold to that person who happens to be making the exchange at this moment. Next moment, it will be another one, or another one. Or it could be that the same person represents the marginal utility for a length of time. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. So that, my, that is my answer to your question. We will come to that when we discuss concepts like marginal productivity or marginal time <coughs> preference. And it works the same way. It's not that your marginal time preference is different from another person's, no. Your time preference is different. But marginal is taking an average in quotation marks because it's not average in the ordinary sense. It's average in the sense that at every moment there is one whose decision is influencing the outcome.
1: I I don't understand why Mises said if gold has a non-declining marginal utility, then that means that it has infinite demand. That seems like just a mistake.
2: Mises is mistake.
1: Yeah. Why why does that mean demand is infinite? Mm -hmm. Where where did it come from? Well,
2: it comes from uh, this idea that he takes it as an axiom, that that uh, marginal utility is declining regardless. Everything. It's a universal law with no exception. Gold is no exception. Silver is no exception. There are no exceptions, period. That he takes as an axiom. Now, if you do take it as an axiom, does it not follow that the demand would have to be infinite?
1: I must be missing
2: it. Yeah. Well, think about it. I, uh, I have thought it over, and at that time my conclusion was that if I accept Mises' axiom, then it does follow. It does follow that uh, demand will have to be infinite. And uh, that's a contradiction, because in practice there is no infinite demand.
3: And if he
1: think about it as a flat supply curve instead of a slope. It never changes. Oh, if you're, okay. If you're in his supply-demand curve thing, okay, okay.
2: Yeah. Now, yeah, that's right. And, and Mises does, but he criticizes it too. So Mises is is uh, way above the classical and neoclassical thinkers because he is always aware that. Concepts such as supply, demand, equilibrium are crutches, crutches. They they help us through various theoretical difficulties, but they are crutches still. A a kind of aid to thought, imperfect as they may be. He, He always admits that. But, for some reason, he doesn't say that we don't need these crutches because we had a menger, a Karl menger, who gave us much better than crutches. He gave us the idea of Absatzfehikkeit, and out of this comes a price theory with bid price, ask price. No equilibrium is needed. You can throw it out. No more. I mean, early on we needed it because we needed cutches. We didn't see clearly. But now, with the help of Karl Menger, we don't need cutches anymore. Now, that's my personal interpretation. And please remember this, because you will meet a lot of people, good people, Austrians who studied Menger as well, Mises and so on, and they would not agree with me. They would say, no, we still need couches. Such as uh, another concept is the evenly rotating economy. That's a concept of Mises. And Mises admits that it's a couch. Helping. Uh, so. You know, that is my personal interpretation, that we don't need the crutch of equilibrium and supply and demand, because we have Menger's very great insight, marketability. A closely related concept is liquidity, and then there is hoardability, and all these. So. Once uh, Menger broke the ice, we have a great deal of concepts to choose from, and none of them would qualify as catches, because it's a real thing. It's just the this description of reality as it is.
0: Alex? Yeah,
1: nobody else had a question on Continue because I don't. I don't feel I, I'm. I'm not satisfied. Um, if uh, uh, I, because the explanation is good, um, uh, you said that Mises didn't explain why uh, people uh, use gold um, as the medium of exchange. Well, but uh, then you said, Ah, no, no, no. It's because it has the slowest falling marginal utility. Um, but. Uh, we can how I don't think that you can use the same uh, method by ba- uh, sta- sta- basically stating that people have uh, unique preferences and then come to the conclusion that everybody's uh, preference marginal preference for gold is the slowest falling out of out of every good uh, com- uh, uh, in comparison to gold. So. Um, I'm explaining poorly, that there's no other commodity that has a slower falling marginal utility. I don't think that that is, I, I don't think that is a, a, a sound claim. Um, is that a fair, is that a... F-
2: I don't think so. No? i tell you why, because you see, we call, we talk about subjective economics, which is which is that the emphasis was shifted (coughs) from uh, these mechanical metaphors such as equilibrium and supply and demand and so on to the preferences of individuals. And that's an axiom that individuals have different preferences. No two, just like you don't have two identical eggs, you will have no two persons with identical preferences. That's a nonsense. It's a contradiction in terms. But the fact that we talk about modern subjective economics doesn't mean that objective uh, Occurrences are completely absent and we cannot talk about them because we have to. How can you measure? I mean, if we did not have a way back from subjectivism to objectivism, if he did not have, if he burnt bridges. We cast over from objective to subjective and say, never ever again go back. Burn the bridges, don't need it. Then you would lose the facility of measuring. Measuring value, measuring uh, interest, measuring prices, whatever. So the way I uh, satisfy myself that it's an interplay between objective and subjective rather than a radical subjectivism denying everything that is objective is this that with concepts uh, such as marginalit- mar- marginal... marginalism, okay this uh, they talk about marginal revolution started by Menger. Okay, so there is marginalism as a methodology okay marginalism now marginalism I think of as a, as a way to go back to object objective ideas for the purpose of measurement and making quantitative statements you see, the individual, the subject the subject is is qualitative because all comparisons are qualitative comparisons. Not all, but you know, in that, in this context. Subjective economics means that we are looking at the individual and his or her preferences and choices and describe economic events in these terms. But we should not refuse to look at things objectively as well. And if we can, then we should introduce objective ideas uh, for the purposes of measuring. And that is one example. Marginal utility of gold is one good example that uh, although all human valuations are subjective, but when it comes to gold, it goes back to objective. I mean, there is no uh, subject, this this is not a subjective statement to to say that the marginal utility of gold declines at a slower rate than that of anything else. Because that's a fact, you, you like it or you dislike it, but that's a fact, you, and if you want to act, you've got to accept it. If you reject it, you are going to suffer for it sooner or later. This is not a fact you can dismiss. Okay.
1: Can I just add one thing to that? If you look at gold stocks to flows, you can compare that to the stocks to flows of any other commodity. The other thing you can look at is the bid-ask spread on gold and compare that to any other commodity. Both of those are confirming the same claim that gold has the either non-declining marginal utility or marginal utility that declines the least. I think it's a very satisfying explanation. Um, and also, if you introduce the idea that gold is the most marketable good, it can used to be used to buy anything else, then you could say that it has... Um, a uh, uh, much more sort of uh, utility or uh, would probably have a much slower decline in utility than any other good because it can be used to buy any other good. Mm. Uh, money. Uh, so I, I,
2: I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied with it. Are you satisfied?
0: Yes. <laughs>
3: uh, just to sum up what you're saying, you have to translate everyone's individual value scale They all have their own, but whatever is highest on their value scale, they satisfy it through money. Whatever you want, you want this, that, or the other, it all comes to money, and gold is money. It doesn't have to be gold. It just happens to be. But once it is, it is. And it's been that for many, many thousands of years. So there you go. It's the Austrian, the really Austrian thing. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Any more questions?
3: talked about uh, uh, that according to Mises, uh, the new money uh, flows into goods and services, but there is another thing that is financial instruments, but with uh, like bonds and obligation and other uh, financial instruments. Uh, after that, the, um, who receives the money with uh, that financial instrument doesn't put this money into goods and services like both with the government that put that money into uh, pay, euros, pay the people, pay services
0: and stuff. Sure. Did, you, did you get that? Mm. Professor? Um, so you said that Von Mises said that um, the newly created credit goes to uh, get gets spent on the goods and services market, mm. but there's a a third class to consider, which is financial assets.
2: You didn't say that.
0: No, no, I'm saying you said that. Uh, Won't the um, inflation in the financial assets somehow find its way back into goods and services?
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's absolutely right. But the government and the central bank wants this to come if if it cannot be avoided, it wants to come as late as possible. And why? Because the greater time span is between the fact of adding to the money supply and the reaction of prices of goods and services, the fact can be obscured. Causality Mm -hmm. can be blotted out, and people won't realize that there's a connection, as actually did happen. Because today, when they say inflation, originally inflation is a Latin word, comes from inflating, like a balloon. You blow air into it, and then it gets larger. And the same with the money supply. You add to it, then you make it bloated. Prices rise. Right. So the connection is obvious. The causality relationship is crystal clear. Used to be. But as it is now, it's completely obscured. People are blindfolded and they say, oh, well, increases money supply is one thing which is beneficial because the government knows what it's doing and these gentlemen at the helm, Ben Bernanke and his cronies, are competent, they are responsible, they are honorable, they know exactly what they are doing, so that's fine. Let them do their thing. That's what they are hired and that's what they... Do. But on the other hand, thing there is something like tectonic movement, something beyond our control, something act of God, like changes in climate or volcanic eruption. Increase inflation doesn't mean increase money supply anymore. It means prices rise because of cosmic forces. <laughs> Beyond human control. There is no, nothing human beings or institution can do to stop that. It's a curse, but nature imposed curse on human race. You see? That is the purpose behind. They, to put that time Uh, span between cause and effect, because people can be fooled so easily. Just increase this time span, and then they completely lose their orientation. People will not realize that this causality, and there is a responsibility, and this belongs to the government. The government creates increasing prices, wages. runaway inflation if it comes to that or even deflation and that is what I will have to talk about uh, more in in this context. So you see the point? Yes indeed there is a time spent but that's on purpose that's part of the evil design of the government and the central bank. They want that. They want to fool you fool me and fool everybody, that there's no causal relationship between increasing money supply and rising prices, or wages, or cost of living, or depreciation of currency. These are cosmic events, nothing to do with government interference. That's what they want.
3: Okay, but uh, the difference between... uh your view and business view uh, about um, the increase uh, the, the flow of the new money I mean at the end uh, if uh, there are new money and uh, um, I get it I can consume now or later so if uh, I put it uh, in a in a bond the government can uh, spend it now or later so it's kind of the same thing for there's no, there's
0: no difference with what... Professor's not disagreeing with what von Mises said. Oh. It's just he's adding another, a third thing to it. And the new money goes into that third thing first and there's a lag before it goes into the other two things. Oh, okay. okay. That's, that's all. It's making a refinement to what von Mises said, oh, that's okay. all.
3: Okay. okay, okay. Uh, another question. Uh, uh, what Of real bills, uh, you say that 60 real bills and 40 gold. I don't
0: get uh, this issue. Why that particular ratio? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
2: Well, it's arbitrary, obviously. That's not my invention. It's written in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, and I think it's originally in the charter of the Reichsbank of Germany going back to the 19th century. Something like, uh, I don't know exactly what year the Reichsbank was established, but it had a charter. And I I think they borrowed this from the charter of the Reichsbank in in the United States. Um, What's the name of this German banker who came to the United States and he was very active.
0: Warburg.
2: Warburg, Warburg, yeah, and actually there was a brother too. So it was a banking family, very uh, influential Jewish banking family in Germany. And uh, I'm saying Jewish uh, just to uh, uh, express my admiration because the Jewish people have their wisdom going back to at least 5,000 years, and part of it is, has to do with money. As you know, the Jews were not allowed to enter professions in Europe for hundreds of years, including medicine and law and this and that and that. But they were allowed to deal in money because because. Uh, Dealing in money involved lending and borrowing and interest, and that was
3: a prohibition,
2: both religious and secular prohibition against lending money. So let the Jews do it, and that was the attitude, and the Jews did it, and did it very well. So there was a great tradition in Jewish families, and the Warburg family is an example. I have only good words to say about the Warburgs. Now I do say this because there is a book, uh, uh, well there are lots of books, which picture the Federal Reserve Act as the document of devil. It's the source of all evils, and so on and so forth. And that's not my view. I don't share this. I think the uh, Reichsbank of Germany, and transplanted into the United States by the Warburg family, uh, had very good points. And one of these good points was their treatment of the bills, the real bills. So I don't know uh, where it came from. I think it came from the Reichsbank that they said that the minimum of 40% of the assets of uh, the uh, central bank has to be gold, gold coins or gold bullion, and the rest is not nothing, as the uh, fractional banking uh, uh, denomination makes suggest. No, the rest, that 60%, is the next best thing to gold. And what's the next best thing to gold is, is self-liquidating paper maturing into gold coins in a few weeks' time, no more than 90 days, no more than 13 weeks, which is not very far away. It's just the length of the season of the year. And this may be arbitrary, and it's not for us to decide here, but that's written in the Federal Reserve Act. That the uh, the assets of the Federal Reserve Bank, banks have to consist of 40 percent gold and the rest in self-liquidating paper, to the exclusion of government bonds. That's a total ban. Banknotes deposits must not be backed by government bonds as an asset, the balance sheet of the central bank. They must be balanced by either gold or real bills maturing into gold. So One has to be very careful in using the term fractional banking and just say this is a fraud because the goldsmiths